That is a picture of my friend Josh and myself. Week before last in New York City, we had not seen each other in over 14 and a half years. The reason that we got together and had dinner when I was in New York, where he lives, is that about two weeks before that picture was taken, he sent me a message out of the blue, a message without anger, without bitterness, without guilt, without shame, just a message with a simple inquiry. When did we stop being such close friends? That question really floored me. He was one of my best friends in college, even after college. And so three days after that phone call came, or the message came, we were on the phone with each other. And what we identified is that there wasn't any single event, there any, wasn't any decisiveness, any point at which we decided, okay, our friendship is over. There was no intentional rupture. It's just that the friendship that we had for most of our 20s, in the conditions of our 20s, in which we were at school together and then lived in the same city together and had a lot of time to be able to spend time around each other. We took the time to talk about the clash and the Yankees and politics and religion and all the things that we had in common and sometimes talking in as much in depth about the things we didn't have in common. Those years in the 20s were replaced by the 30s and the 40s in which we both moved from New York to, at least within the continental United States, I think the furthest place we could be away from each other, he in Seattle and me in Fort Lauderdale. What happened to us? Families happened to us. Progressing in our careers happened to us. What happened to us? We both identified when we talked. We stopped making time the time that all true friendships require. So two messages ago in this series, I was talking about the second of these five regrets of the dying that have been identified by an Australian hospice nurse. She has heard these regrets over and over and over again in the patients that she has cared for over the years. Two Sundays ago, I was talking about the second regret. I wished I hadn't worked so hard. And the fact that I think I saw that regret at a certain time of my life written into the behavior and on the faces of a certain group of people. You see, in the late 90s and into the early 2000s, I lived in South Florida, as I mentioned. And I particularly lived in a high-rise on the beach. And in that beach uh, condominium, there were two distinctive kinds of populations. One, young professionals like myself, just kind of getting started. And two... Elderly people, folks in retirement. And within that retirement kind of demographic, there were two even more subgroups. One, the elderly women who gathered together in groups by the poolside just about every day to play canasta or bridge or any of those card games that have not been handed down to me, and to talk about their lives, to talk about their grandkids, to talk about their aches and their pains. And then a second group, not in a group, the elderly men, often on their own, lingering in the lobby, 
lingering sometimes, sadly it seemed, by the mailboxes, almost waiting for an opportunity to get someone to talk to. At around this time, there was also a movie called The Rat Pack. I don't know if any of you saw it. It was on HBO, and it was a story of Frank and Sammy and Dino and all the ways they got into trouble and all the ways in which they were good friends. And the movie actually opens with an elderly Frank Sinatra before we see the flashback. An elderly Frank Sinatra, alone by himself in a music studio, speaking to a radio, uh, recording engineer on the other side of the glass saying simply these words, sadly, I miss my guys. He missed his friends. There's echoes of this in the other source that I'm using for this message series, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' wholesome, beautiful, and finally redemptive story of Ebenezer Scrooge ending out his days seemingly as a lonely miser, cut off, utterly alone, friendless. But here's the wonderful thing about the story and also the heartbreaking thing about the story. When the three ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future start to visit him, what we see almost immediately from the ghost of Christmas past is that Ebenezer Scrooge was not always so lonely. We see that at one point he had the gift of many friends and the time to make friends. And there's this particular story I'm going to read to you right now, which is about uh, these two wonderful characters, happily titled the Fezziwigs, Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig. These are the first people that Scrooge worked for as a young apprentice in business. And the Fezziwigs, every Christmas Eve, the night that a Christmas carol in the present, in which Scrooge is visited by the ghost, Every night at Christmas Eve, every year at Christmas Eve, they would throw a party, a party in which they would shut down the business, they wouldn't work right up until the final moment they could, and they would invite all their friends, their family, and it was a joyous event, and at the end of the night, standing there, they would courteously, generously thank every single person who attended and wish them directly with joy, Merry Christmas. This is where the story picks up. I want to tell you, during the whole of this time, Dickens writes, the old Scrooge, while witnessing this scene, acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene, and with and a part of his younger self, he corroborated everything that happened. He remembered everything that happened. He enjoyed everything that happened and underwent the strangest agitation. He only remembered that the ghost was there with him when the ghost spoke to him. The ghost of Christmas past said slyly, Huh, a small matter, it seems, to make all you silly folks so full of gratitude. Small, echoed Scrooge. The ghost answered, Why is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your precious mortal money. Is that so much that he deserves all of this praise from you? It isn't about the money, said the old Scrooge, heated by this remark from the ghost, and speaking unconsciously like his younger, not his older self. It isn't that spirit. He had the power to make us happy or unhappy, to make happy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. 
Say that his power lies in words and in looks, in things so slight and insignificant that they could be overlooked, almost impossible to add and count that up. The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What he's saying is that Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig knew the art of friendship, of making time and space for connection. And it's here in the book that we get the first inkling of something that Jesus said, that Scrooge is starting to know in his life, that he has gained the world but lost his soul. He has forgotten that even he needs the time, the space, the commitment to keep those connections of the heart alive and to continue to forge those connections, which sadly he had lost touch with for decades in his life. Now, there's a lot of recent research that says that Americans, most of us, I imagine, maybe not all, but citizens of the U.S. are lonelier than we have ever been. One of the ways this is studied is that they ask folks questions. If you had a real problem, a real problem that meant that you had to be honest about how you were struggling or something you might even be embarrassed about, can you list the number of people that you would call with that problem and be unashamed about opening up to them? It turns out when they've been asking this question over the last few decades that that list is getting shorter and shorter. Friends who we really trust, trust when we're struggling. And by the way, interestingly enough, there's a subgroup within the overall American population that's most at risk for loneliness and for being without true, intimate friends. You're looking at them. White, check. Straight, check. Men, check. Not true for all of us, but it's true in the aggregate. And by the way, I'm not saying that the privilege I have as being a white straight man in the society is equal to those who are considered more suspect even if they haven't done anything by a legal system, or that my struggles with potential loneliness are equal to someone who is much more likely than me to be a target for sexual violence, or someone who because, simply because of the accident of the zip code in which they were born has the expectation of a life expectancy a full decade less than my own. I'm saying that the accident of my birth means that I am more likely to wear the false face of privilege, of playing the games of power and control, of wanting to keep up appearances, and therefore less likely to allow myself to really know others, and to really be known. Bless you. It takes time and vulnerability to sustain friendships over the years, to be known by other lives in time. And by the way, this has been demonstrated, this research, over and over again. In the fall, I preached in a message series about what privilege costs us and costs other people. And there's a lab at UC Berkeley that actually studies this, that if 
one of those tests they did, finding out that if you drive a very expensive car, you didn't know you were part of this test, by the way, you are four times less likely to stop for someone in a crosswalk walking across the street. Their research, not mine, might make us uncomfortable, might make me uncomfortable. doesn't make it any less true. What Frank talked about, slowing down. <laughs> Sometimes the more important we consider ourselves to be, the more busy we become, the less we are willing to slow down and abide with those connections that matter. I think it's true for all of us in our society, regardless of our race, class, religion, gender. It goes back to the regret itself today. Maybe you've heard yourself saying this to yourself. I wished I had stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. It does take time. It does take a decisive act to be involved in other people's lives on a meaningful basis. It's like in movies, uh, you know, that scene where someone falls and breaks an ankle or something, and, and they say, go on without me. Go on without me. I'll just hold you back. But normally there's one friend who says, no, I'm staying here with you. I'm not going to let you go. One of my best real-life examples of this is this guy, Bruce Springsteen, who teaches me to be certainly a more humble and a more heartful man. And I just say overall, Bruce, thank you because you teach me to be a better human being. But here's the thing with Bruce. He does that because it's not about Bruce. It's about Bruce and the E Street Band. Susie and Nils and little Stephen and Max and the big man, Clarence Clemens. May he rest in peace. When they had not been touring for a very long time and came back together in 2000, they did a particular song called, If I Should Fall Behind. And that song is actually about an intimate romantic relationship, but the really cool way that they sang that song together is normally Bruce sings lead and everyone else is backing him up. If I should fall behind, wait for me, goes the refrain in that song. And each of them, Susie, Nils, little Stephen, and the big man himself, who rarely if ever sang, each got a verse. And so what could have been just a romantic love song became even something deeper. It was the pledge of their fidelity and friendship to each other. If we want to unscrooge our lives, it really means looking honestly and opening our hearts honestly to other people, to our friends so that we're there with them. It means living out one of the core beliefs of this congregation that freedom finds its fulfillment in connection with each other's, not in spite of our connections, not apart from our connections, but freedom finds its fulfillment in our connections with each other. This is, by the way, one of the core teachings of the Buddha. Buddhism, which is often, especially in Northern America, totally misconstrued as an individualistic religion, an individualistic practice. It's not. It is an anti-authoritarian, in many ways, tradition. But this thing we call an individual in the West, if you study enough Buddhism, what you'll find out is that they teach the individual doesn't even exist. <laughs> 
It's a fiction we tell ourselves about how we are separate from each other. And so friendship is incredibly important to encourage us in the path, in the mindfulness path. And so in this little dialogue, I'm going to share with you Ananda, who's really the Buddha's right-hand man. But even more, to make it more intimate, he's really the Buddha's best friend. Ananda said, said to the Blessed One, to the Buddha, this is half of the holy life. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. But the Buddha said, no, Ananda, you are wrong. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. Because the extent to which we really open our lives to other people in friendship, there's a direct correlation between that and the flourishing of our own individual lives, our awakening, our becoming full, whole human people. It's hard to do that when we're conveying an image of our lives rather than really opening up to other folks. Each of these five regrets in this message series, each of these five regrets, including today's, can really be expressed by people who've come to the end of their lives and recognize they were kind of running the wrong software or they were operating under the wrong expectations, which is that they've come to realize that life is not a goal to be achieved. Life is not a goal to be achieved, not if we want to have true, deep, and soulful satisfaction. Life is a gift to be enjoyed, savored, and nurtured. It is my friendships, and I know for many of you, your friendships that have taught me this gift of living over time. To be truly known by lives through time for the gift of allowing ourselves to move beyond that image of a superficial life that we might want to convey of success into the holy and hidden heart of who each and every one of us are. This Scrooge beautifully gets to realize before the end of his life. He gets to remember how important his friends were. And sometimes this is why listening to those who are dying and awake and aware while they're dying can be the best thing for those of us who are in the midst of life because they will teach us this life is impermanent. We don't have all the time in the world. We have the time of this life, of our life, of your life. And to choose what to do with it, to treat it like a gift is a profound gift they offer us. There's a movie called The Departed from a few years ago that you might remember kind of crime drama. Jack Nicholson is in it, and he plays a murderous psychopath. And he gave me one of the most profound pieces of wisdom that I will ever realize. He didn't intend it that way, but his character at one point says this, we're all on our way out. Act accordingly. Now, he says this in response to someone who's dying. And he says this because he wants to kill more people. We can turn that around and use that in a wholesome way. We're all on our way out. Act accordingly. This is the great blessing that Scrooge realizes because as the ghost of Christmas future shows him, his gravesite, and he sees the future, his life, unloved, unmissed, 
unmourned. And that's the opening back to life for him. It reminds me of a, a wonderful song by the Fleet Foxes, a band, that's about a guy about my age imagining what it will be like on his deathbed. Imagining what it will be like on his deathbed. He says, I wonder if I'll see any faces above me or just cracks in the ceiling, nobody left to blame. I wonder if we'll see many faces above us or just cracks in the ceiling, nobody left to blame. That's why this is great wisdom. We are all of us on our way out. That out might be way in the future or might be sometime soon. Act accordingly. Who will keep you warm when life inevitably grows cold? Act accordingly. Who will be there with you to share the great grand vista at the peak moments of life so it's not a solitary vision? Act accordingly. Who will be there to help heal and hold your heart when the heart breaks as it must? Act accordingly. Who will be there when you fall and will wait behind for you? Act accordingly. Who will be there at the end? Act accordingly. Life is not an achievement. Life is a gift. May all of us act accordingly and be there for our friends and be a friend and be honest with our friends so that we can befriend this life. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of belonging, God of beloving, God of befriending, May we ask ourselves this question prayerfully and listen for the answer. Are we acting according to the profound connection that is the source of all goodness, all insight, all love in this life? May we recognize and act in accordance with this truth that we are born for and from and with and alongside each other. May we act accordingly if we know that this day there is a beloved friendship that we have let lapse, a dear one to us, someone whose life we have benefited or they have benefited us, and we feel a gulf, a chasm, simply because of our busyness, simply because of our importance, simply because of our running around, may today we stop planting seeds of regret and replant again those seeds of connection, hope, and love. Today, may we be befriending this life. Amen.